Hey there, folks. Matt Hunsaker here for the State Tax Show. Today, we hit some unrelated stories from Texas, New Jersey, and the Multi-State Tax Commission. I'm in catch-up mode today, so I am going to just hit a few stories that you should be interested in, but from a pretty high level. I hope you don't mind the rapid-fire format. First up is some Texas legislation. Like a lot of states, Texas imposes sales tax on data processing, albeit at a lower rate. But... Like many of these statutes, it was written quite a while ago, and as a result, we tend to see a lot of computer-related services get swept up into the definition, right or wrong. Well, I represent taxpayers, so I tend to find myself arguing it's wrong. The legislation in Texas didn't fix everything about the statute, but it did address one important issue, and that is whether payment processing services are data processing services. See, the comptroller historically has not treated merchant credit and debit card processing as taxable data processing. But there were some rumors that this policy might change. To forestall that, the legislature passed Senate Bill 153, and what it does is it specifically excludes services that are to encrypt electronic payment information for acceptance onto a payment card network, or also settling an electronic payment transaction by, and it's going to be a long list here, downstream payment processors, a point-of-sale payment processor, a taxpayer in the business of money transmission, and a federally insured financial institution, Oh, and also a payment card network. So that's a pretty good list, and that is some good news for those folks that are in that particular industry. How about a little Public Law 86-272 action? Back in May, the New Jersey Tax Court released a decision in Procacci Brothers Sales Corp. The taxpayer there was a Pennsylvania-based produce wholesaler that sold to grocery stores in New Jersey. It didn't have any offices, property, or inventory in New Jersey, and for the most part, it used third-party carriers to deliver the produce to customers in New Jersey. But it did use its own trucks on occasion. It also had a subsidiary that grew produce in New Jersey. I mean, it is the Garden State, after all. And in one year the taxpayer would send its own trucks into the state to pick up produce from its affiliate that grew it there and then deliver it back to Pennsylvania. Now, every once in a while, when produce was delivered, it wasn't acceptable. And sometimes the produce was returned before it was even accepted, and then sometimes it was returned after it was accepted, and we'll get to why that's important later. For the most part, the produce that wasn't accepted just got left on the truck 
and usually it was a third-party truck, but sometimes it was the taxpayer's own truck that was making the delivery and uh, returning the produce back to Pennsylvania. One of the interesting things about this case is how the taxpayer got in trouble, and that was that the Division of Taxation did a truck stop on one of the distributor's drivers, and based on that truck stop, determined that the taxpayer should have been paying tax in New Jersey and actually issued a Jeopardy assessment. The taxpayer, as you can imagine, claimed that it was protected from taxation under Public Law 86-272, and you can check out the archives if you're not too familiar with that law, but it basically protects taxpayers from income tax if their only activity in the state is solicitation of sales for tangible personal property where the sales are accepted and delivered from out of state. And then there's also been some subsequent case law that also protects actions that are, and the the quote from the case law is, entirely ancillary to the solicitation of sales. That was the Wrigley case, if you want to look that one up. So what happened here in the court? Well, the court held that taking back rejected orders before acceptance was ancillary to sales activity and protected by Public Law 86272. But retrieving products with its own trucks after acceptance exceeded Public Law 86272. It was not ancillary to sales activity. But in most of the years, the court felt that this was kind of a trivial connection to the state. And so even though it technically exceeded the protections of Public Law 86-272, the court considered it de minimis. But remember how I said that the taxpayer also sent its own trucks to pick up stuff from its affiliated grower? Well, that really only happened a lot in one year, and that didn't sit well with the court. So for that one year where it did a bunch of pickups with its own trucks and brought produce back to Pennsylvania, the court concluded that the taxpayer was outside of Public Law 86272 and they were taxable in that year. Now, I personally like this case because it specifically addresses de minimis activity and it addresses it quite favorably by allowing a taxpayer to avoid paying income tax when it is just occasionally and de minimisly, is that even a word, de, minimis, de minimisly? exceeding the protections of Public Law 86-272. So this will be a very useful case for companies down the road who find themselves on occasion slipping just outside the protections of Public Law 86-272. Let's finish up with a development from the Multi-State Tax Commission. There's actually quite a few of them, but I want to talk about just one for now. They really all kind of deserve their own show. And that is the MTC's project to study partnership tax issues. I think it's officially called the Project on State Taxation of Partnerships. The charge of the working group is to really focus on understanding, and this is a quote here, underdeveloped laws for state taxation of partnerships. And I totally agree with the underdeveloped part. It can be a little messy, and it's probably only going to get more so with all the pass-through entity election laws to get around the TCGA's 
$10,000 salt cap. The working group had its first meeting on June 15th, and what they did is they looked at the feedback from the MTC Standing Subcommittee and from the states and decided to break up the project uh, outline into three baskets. The first is issues relating to taxing partnership income. This would be things like nexus rules for partners, administrative obligations on partnerships, apportionment, and probably there's going to be a little bit of talk about transfer pricing and some of the related adjustments. The second basket is issues relating to gain or loss on the sale of a partnership interest. And this is a very thorny question. And I think you'd be surprised if you don't work in this area at just how little law there is in many states on something like this that happens all the time. The final basket is mostly administrative issues, things like centralized audits and credit issues, particularly those credit issues that are implicated by the TCGA cap workarounds. I think a lot of good's going to come out of this project, and I'm sure a lot of work is going into it. Right now, the MTC is holding meetings on the project, I think every couple weeks, and I will certainly keep you updated as I learn more, but I suspect that this is not going to be a quick project, and frankly, we're probably going to be talking about it for quite a while. Well, that's all I got for this week. I'll be back next Monday with a brand new episode of the State Tax Show. Until then, I hope you have yourselves a splendid week. The State Tax Show podcast is produced by Baker and Hostetler, LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.